everybody, Kit Cummings. Welcome to the Power of Peace podcast. I'm so glad you stopped by. This is our number one episode. And in our podcast, we're going to be talking about something that is becoming more and more elusive in today's world. We're living in a world where from the news to the economy to the streets to inflation to the uh, just what's coming next, it's stealing our peace. And we see it more and more as people just, they're just trying to get by, just trying to make it. In one way or another, my work involves peace. And I'm going to tell a story today. If I'm going to be tuning into a podcast, I want to know a little bit about the guy that's talking. And so I'm going to give you some background into my story. But in my career, I get to work in schools, and that's a lot of my prevention programs. So I work with kids, and usually it's the kids that are having a hard time. And so I work in alternative schools. And in one way or another, I'm working with kids that either we're afraid of or mad at. <laughs> There's not a lot of programs going on out there for our young people that are trying to find and make their way through a world that even the grown folks are having a hard time with. Imagine if you and I are trying to figure out how to manage the noise in the head with all the, the news that we're being bombarded with. Imagine being 15 years old and trying to figure out who are you and where do you belong so that's a part of my work that I treasure. I get to work with young people. And really, I spend more time with young people than I do grown folks. In a lot of ways, it keeps me young, but I'm also, um, I want to become an expert in this young generation because <laughs> good or bad, you know, positive or negative, they are the future. They're going to be leading us in 20 years. That'll keep you up at night. And so my work in the schools, we're going to be talking a lot about that in this podcast. I'll be having guests on that are educators, that are thought leaders, that are people out there in the field of education and trying to shape the hearts and the minds of our young people. Um, we're gonna have some wonderful guests around that. I also get to work with juvenile courts and um, under uh, an accountability court, uh, which is called Rising. Very excited about this part of my work. And so, you know, not just working with kids that are in school, that might be getting caught up in some things. It might not always be crime and violence, sometimes it is. It might not be gangs. It could be just certain learning disabilities, things that are, are getting kids off track. Mainstream school is not working for them. And so we're trying to catch them before trouble finds them. But once they do find trouble in the juvenile courts, maybe they've caught in charges, they've gotten a case. Um, I work with kids that have caught felonies that are under court supervision. And we try to give them the tools and the resources to be able to rebuild their lives and straighten out some things before they make that big mistake. And uh, our program is a second chance program. I love working with knuckleheads. And so that's a big part of my work too. Again, juveniles, young folks. But I also get to work with the Department of Juvenile Justice in my home state of Georgia. Um, have a really, really cool relationship with the commissioner, uh, Commissioner Tyrone Oliver. He's a guy that I want to have on the show. He's the top cop in the state when it comes to juvenile facilities. I contracted with the DJJ about a year and a half ago, and right now I do work pretty much weekly in Georgia's toughest juvenile facility. And these are 16 to 20-year-old violent felons, a lot of whom are gang-affiliated. And interestingly, the, the camp, the, the juvenile prison I'm working at right now, predominantly bloods. And so it's, it's one gang that kind of runs the prison, then you have some rivals in the place. It makes for a very colorful time. And <laughs> it's the highlight of my week on Wednesdays when I drive down to that juvenile prison. I also have really, really important work that I do with law enforcement. I actually get to do some training with law enforcement, um, which I love doing. I did my thing for a long time um, without the support of elected officials and law enforcement. I had to earn the right 
you know, to be able to work with them. So now it's all hand in hand. Um, so to recap, you know, I've got schools, courts, prisons, law enforcement, and also a program for churches, which is a, an army of volunteers just waiting to be mobilized. Um, but today, what I want to do for episode one is I want to let you in on what in the world got me, <laughs> brought me to this place, um, this journey that led me to working with, you know, some of those fascinating people in the world, some of the toughest people to work with, and how did my life become about peace? I believe it was something that I needed to find. I mean, for myself. Uh, if you ever heard about the heard of the archetype, the wounded healer, that is me. So a lot of the work that I'm doing is because of the, some of the storms in life that came through that really were turning points in my life. Some of the stuff that I'm going to share about, um, I tend to be pretty vulnerable and just talk about my life. I figure if I'm going to be trying to help some people, why in the world would I not just let you see behind the curtain? Um, so we'll get started. Growing up, I was the least likely guy to become a preacher. Like, nobody saw that coming. <laughs> Certainly not me. Um, I didn't go to church. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't hang out with religious kids. That just wasn't my thing. I was raised by a family that taught me principles and morals and how I should act. So I don't have that excuse that my parents went around and didn't teach me right. Um, I just didn't choose right very often. All right. So I was, I was a kid that I wouldn't say Eddie Haskell, for those that have been around for a long, long time, remember Leave It the Beaver, <laughs> you know, that thing. Now you're going to be dating yourself if you remember that thing. But Eddie Haskell was like this one. He was one way around the grown folks, and he was a whole other way around the young folks. That was me. Um, I was a talented kid that was trying to prove himself and felt the weight of the world on top of me. Addiction runs in my family line. And today we have an epidemic, a rising epidemic of addiction in our nation. And it can be the typical alcohol, drugs, whether it be cocaine, heroin, meth, the things we're seeing on the street, the opioid crisis. It can be that. It can be uh, prescription meds. You got people that are hooked on Adderall and Xanax and different things. Kids are just tossing pills around in the, the hallways. It's like, man, when I was young and I was, I, I am these kids, which is why I care about them so much. But I was a young man trying to make sense of a world that didn't make sense to me. My dad, God bless him, may rest in peace. He was a practicing alcoholic till the day that he passed. And he died when I was in college of the disease. And so I come by it honest. But those of us and the people that are watching and listening to this that come from um, a family, you know, where addiction is a part of the story, there's some common denominators. I mean, it makes for a kind of an insecure, unstable household environment. You're like wondering, you know, what's going to happen tonight? Is he going to be happy tonight? Is he going to get angry tonight? The next day, just pretend like nothing happened, fly under the radar, try to stay out of trouble. That was me. But at the same time, I was a good athlete. Uh, school came easy to me. Socially, I did well, you know, hung with the popular kids, whatever. But deep down, man, and those, again, that struggle with addiction, they'll understand what this means when I say I was always trying to get out of right here, right now. You know, anything that could take me to another place, that's where I wanted to be. Uncomfortable in my own skin, which is a common trait of alcoholics, but also the adult children of alcoholics, people that, that were raised in these type families. God bless families. It's 23 million families in America are dealing with addiction, and that's just that we know about. 
And that was my story. First time I ever drank, I think I was either 12 or 13 years old and went over to a friend's house. His parents went out, we got into the liquor cabinet. And I remember the first taste of alcohol. I remember like it was yesterday, I was 12, I'm 58. Um, the, the warmth when it went down and immediately, and those of us that are like me, I was already thinking about when's the next time I can do this again. And those that get caught up in the addiction cycle, they say that we're always chasing that first high. And I believe that to be true. And that's why you're always trying to get higher and higher and higher and higher. And eventually you just can't get there and it gets unsustainable. Well, I was at that point, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, trying to be an athlete, trying to be a student, trying to be a good kid, but dealing with these demons inside. And I was developing a problem pretty early uh, when it came to my drinking and drugging. I was the kid that would do whatever you wanted me to do. Just push me in the wrong, <laughs> dare me to do something. Yeah, I'm your huckleberry. <laughs> we can do that. And I, I gathered around me a group of like-minded individuals. So me and my crew, um, I say crew, you know, we're just a bunch of knuckleheads. We, we just got into trouble. And we, you know, the kids I work with, most of the time I say, you know, except maybe some of the gang kids down at the, the juvenile prison, but I say, there ain't no way you've done more than I've done. I mean, I am the knucklehead, the recovering knucklehead that now loves these kids. And so, you know, by the time I'm 17, 18, 19, I get into a world, I'm lost in college. I'm crashing cars, I'm starting to get arrested. Um, but still doing good in school. You know, I mean, I kind of handle my business, but my life is starting to slide. Major turning point in my life, um, I get a phone call and my dad is, is dead. You know, my sister on the other line. And, um, well, how did he die? And I don't know, it's kind of, it was, maybe it was a, like an overdose, maybe it was a suicide, we're not sure. It messed me up. Me and my dad had a complicated relationship. In this podcast, I want to talk about relationships. I mean, if we're going to be talking about finding peace, it starts with finding peace with me. I mean, making peace with myself um, so that, you know, I can't give away what I don't have. And my whole world is about bringing peace, bringing peace to the young minds I work with so that we can have peace in our schools because hating and bullying is at an all-time high. I mean, these kids are, are making an art form out of bullying. Um, with social media, good Lord, we've got kids being driven to suicide and self-harm because of the way our kids are really following the lead that we taught them, you know, in this world. And so it, it, it was my life. I was, I was, I didn't have peace. And I think that's why, you know, I do what I do today. But man, I, that phone call changed my life. And I went 21, 22, 23, I went kind of dark into it. And, you know, all of us say, I ain't gonna be like my old man. And sure enough, man, I was well on my way. My dad died at 52. You know, there's so many things that I haven't gotten to do with him. So many things that were unsaid. Uh, so many things I didn't get to apologize for, or say I forgive you for. We had a very complicated, contentious relationship. Um, and so that's, that's been hard. 35 years or however long since he's been gone, I've been trying to, to reconcile and, and mend and heal that broken relationship because I want to find peace inside of me. Like I said, I can't give you what I don't have. And so that's a huge part of my story. But now all of a sudden, you know, I said, the least likely got to become a preacher. I believe this, and this is a big part of my work. I believe that when a soul comes into the world wrapped in flesh, there's a dominant gift that our creator attached to that soul. It's meant to be given to the world. 
I think the meaning of life is to figure out what that unique gift is. And the purpose of life is to give it away because the world needs my gift. Well, I'm walking around, you know, with this hidden gift. I didn't know what it was. I was good socially. I can talk a little bit. I was good at making friends. Man, I'm life of the party kind of guy. But all of a sudden, man, it was, it was the perfect storm. And at 25, I'm sick and tired. And I just, I'm done. I don't have anything left. And I just kind of decided I was going to go get in shape, start playing basketball again. Met a guy, it changed my life. Today, you're going to meet a lot of people. You're going to bump into people. You're going to reconnect with people. You're going to find people on Facebook you haven't seen in a long time. Every now and then, somebody's going to come into your life and they were sent with a purpose, and that was what it was. This was my time. And so I was looking, you know, I was looking to change. I'd already decided I wanted to stop drinking. And this guy was like, he had a shine to him, man. I mean, we're playing basketball, and most of us, we're just pagans. We're just out there cussing and sweating and doing what we do. And there's this guy, man, that's the only way I can describe it. He had like a shine to him, but he was a good athlete, but he was clean. He wasn't cussing or anything. And so he would always remember my name. And I went and I, I, I saw him out one day and I said, man, what is your deal? Like, what do you do? And he said, I'm a minister. And I said, really? I ain't never seen one like you. And the rest was history, man. I went to his church. He started studying the Bible with me. Finally, he got me up on a stage and I'd never been on one. And when I stood up and began to preach, I didn't know what preaching was. When I began to speak, people paid attention and there was like this relationship, this connection that was built with the audience. And I'm telling you, it was intoxicating. It was like I found what I was supposed to do. They responded. It fueled me. I couldn't wait to do it again. I'd never felt anything like that. Maybe basketball. <laughs> that was about it. And so, man, that set a trajectory, boom, like that for me. And I was good at what I did. My churches got bigger. They gave me bigger churches. I started overseeing other churches. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I was in charge of about 5,000 people. <clears throat> and it was heavy. And somewhere along the line, that calling, it became a career. And see, those of us that set out to do that thing, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be a career. <laughs> and you don't really have a plan B. And so I, what do you do when your dreams come true and you get what you want? You know, I found my gift. I gave it to the world. I built a life. I had a large congregation. I was respected. People admired me. You know, I, I felt good at what I did. We had security. I didn't owe anybody hardly nothing. I didn't have a lot of problems with money. Didn't have too much. Didn't have too little. Had a couple beautiful little kids, a marriage, everything going straight. And I hit 40 and the wheels started shaking. <laughs> and honestly, I started getting thirsty. There was something that was missing, man. And, and it was that same, that, that old me that I thought was gone. All those years I've been preaching, that joker was doing push-ups in the parking lot, <laughs> waiting on me to get back out there. And, you know, life showed up like it does. Man, when life shows up, it doesn't make an appointment and it doesn't ask permission. It just comes. And man, storms visited me and my work was tested and I failed. And I lost my heart. And so I decided to step out of the ministry and walk away. I resigned and I wasn't fired. As a matter of fact, they tried to convince me to stay and I was out of gas. And I said, I got to go. And so I went out into this world I wasn't ready for. And it was, you know, cocktail parties and after hours and corporate luncheons and all this stuff where there's alcohol. And man, I got real thirsty again. And I went through a wilderness experience. That was 17 years ago. The reason I know that 
is um, shoot, it's December, so I'm about, if today, I've got about two weeks from today, it'll be 17 years since I had my last drink. So in 2005 is when I had what we call a moment of clarity. And I decided for the second significant time in my life, it's time to change. I'm gonna do whatever I gotta do. And so I did, and that was a huge, I believe in turning points. You know, I mean, and you don't know when they're going to come. You might meet somebody, you might watch a podcast, and all of a sudden, right time, right place, boom, something happens, a decision, a choice, an opportunity, something comes. Sometimes it's a storm. We get squeezed, and we get into that place that we need to be, and that's what this was for me. So the first step was stopping drinking, and I fell in love and um, got married again and, you know, kind of started trying to win things back that I had lost. And, but I was miserable. I was heartbroken because I couldn't preach anymore. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And I had squandered it. You know, I mean, what do I do now? It's not like there was, um, you know, people, one ads, you know, looking for a drunken fallen preacher. <laughs> you know, it's like I, was, I figured I was disqualified. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. So I hustled. I got into mortgage banking for a minute. Do I look like a mortgage banker? Um, I didn't look like this then, though. You know, I did a little real estate, did some insurance, just doing whatever I had to do, hustling to try to support my family. But what do you do when you had the job of your dreams and now you can't do it anymore? It was like that. And now I don't have my best friend, which is alcohol. <laughs> He's gone. And so I just was longing. I mean, I, how do I do this? And so I decided, see, I had, I had sworn off churches. I wouldn't try and go back to church. I mean, all I, at the time, I felt like, man, that's where you get judged and gossip about and slander. Now, right or wrong, that's just how I felt. I was mad at them. I was mad at God. I was mad at me. I mean, that was just, you know, it was, it was where I was. Coming out of it, man, I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. And I'm like, man, I hope you're not done with me yet. And I prayed a prayer that changed my life. And it was pretty much this. I said, if you ever let me preach the word again, I'll go to the ones nobody else wants to go to. I said, the harassed and helpless. And I named them. I said, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner. Jesus called these the least of these, those that are at the bottom of the rung. I said, I'll go to them. And I don't even know what made me pray that, but I prayed it. And then time went by. I mean, sometimes we pray desperate prayers, and then we sit around wondering why God didn't answer. I believe he answered on that day, but it took me three years to get ready, you know, for him to deliver. And he did. And he called me to that promise. Now, today, I work with all kinds of people. I, I, you know, if I'm asked to preach, which I am frequently, I preach. I preach in the church. But I also have beautiful relationship with Muslim brothers in prisons across the country. You know, I, also, I mean, Christian, Muslim, Jew, black, white, brown, old, young, rich, poor, it's like this message is universal, and that's, that's where it's come to now. At the time, man, I just wanted to preach again. And all of a sudden, this kid came back to my life through, through his mother, and she reached out to me on this new thing called Facebook in 2008. And it was this kid that, that I had um, kind of mentored when I led a large church in Gwinnett. And he would come up afterwards, he'd wait in line, and he'd say, Mr. Kit, Mr. Kit, and he'd tell me what he learned in my sermon. And I just was very fond of this little boy, Luis. He was probably 12, 13. And I went away to lead another church, went to Athens or something. And he went into high school, and I lost him. And this was about 10 or 12 years later. 
and he had got caught up into a world that, you know, it's, it's worst case scenario, and he'd become a gang leader uh, for a gang called MS-13. Now, some of you guys, when you hear that, you might know, dang, MS-13, they're, they're the worst of the worst. Um, for those that don't know, no joke. And my, my young friend had become somebody in that world, and he was looking at a gang-related murder charge with a potential death penalty. Now think about it, all I wanted to do, all I said was let me preach again and I'll go to the ones that nobody wants to go to. <laughs> well, I feel like God kind of threw me in the deep end of the pool and he started with a, a, a dangerous killer for one of the worst gangs in America, if not the worst. But here was the, the secret and it became my secret of, of my success in my field. I knew him before the gangs got a hold of him. I knew him before he hit the streets. And so I knew who he really was. And that made all the difference. Because when I walked into the jailhouse that night, and my friend Luis, I hadn't seen him in years. I'm expecting for this little boy to walk out <laughs> in a little jumpsuit. And instead, this grown man, you know, big, tatted up. His eyes looked like they had died. I mean, he had been in the game. I mean, just gone dark, done some terrible things. But when he saw me, it's like his, light, his eyes lit up. And mine did too. And we embraced, man. We hugged longer than men typically do. <laughs> and that set into motion two years of me following him around as they moved him from facility to facility, as he went through his trial, as he got a hit put out on him by his gang. As I mean, it was two years of drama. And I would follow him around through the glass on the phone, and he would teach me about the gang life, which was invaluable to me. I mean, now I've got certifications. I'm considered a gang expert. Man, my first learning was a gang leader teaching me things that you don't get to know as a civilian. And I was teaching him about God and about how to, how to bring his life back together. And together, we saved one another. <laughs> he gave me a purpose back. I gave him one. He's about four years from coming home. He ended up getting 20. I testified um, at his trial, federal courthouse. It was a big deal. And so I'm waiting on Luis to come home. But what he did is he started this thing inside of me to where I was so ready. Right at the right time in 2009, I was invited to go to the worst prison in the state of Georgia. And that's where the miracle happened for me. There's no way I could have designed this story, you know, that you're going to hear about in this season of eight episodes of this podcast. Because that one decision to go ahead and take me where you want me to go and to go and, and help those that nobody else wanted to help. I think it was me. I mean, I needed it. I mean, I felt like, man, they need me to come and help them. But we developed kind of like this symbiotic relationship where, man, I wasn't trying to go to church. I was filled with shame. I was beating myself up for the mistakes I'd made. I needed a safe place to be able to kind of exercise some of the demons, you know, and just deal with my shame. And they became my safe place, which is kind of funny when I say it now, because this is these are dangerous maximum security prisons with real convicts. I'm talking about prison gangs. And they became my church. And I don't say that in a religious sense. I mean, I, I go in there and just share my heart, my dreams, my heartaches. I would cry with them. I would tell them about my biggest failures, and they laughed. I mean, think about it. <laughs> Most of the dudes in there, they would love to trade problems with me. And that gave me perspective. It helped me find my gratitude. It helped me quit taking myself so seriously. They helped me forgive myself. 
They taught me some things that I couldn't learn in seminary. They taught me about what respect is and loyalty is, man, what your word means, things you wouldn't think you would learn from gangsters in maximum security prisons. But that's what happened for me. It was, I mean, I was in school again. And that set into motion what this whole thing is going to be about. Georgia became prisons in Michigan, which became prisons in Ohio. Then I took it to Kansas and Nebraska, out to California, down into Tijuana. I did prisons in South Africa and Ukraine, in Honduras, and a lot of work in Mexico, in prisons across the country. It took me to over 100 prisons, jails, and detention centers, um, 40 states, four continents. I mean, the incarcerated became my passion, and I couldn't get enough. And I was trying to figure out how in the world do I create a living around this. And so I started writing books and that was something I never thought I would do. I've written six, I'm working on my seventh. Um, we've got this podcast right now, we're, we're um, signed a film deal. And so we're, we're gonna create this story into a narrative, into a dramatic narrative, limited series, all these things that I never would have dreamed of. All I wanted to do was go see my friend Luis who was in trouble. And in that, I found my purpose in life. Now. Man, I love what I do so much, you'd have to kill me to stop me. <laughs> so somewhere along the way, the adult facilities, and I was getting real deep into the gang life as far as, you know, not into the gang life, but, you know, hanging with gangsters. It started to change everything about me. I mean, they became my story. The reason I'm covered with the ink is because it's my story. I mean, you can find yourself in my story. And, man, I was on the road, and it was just this whirlwind as I was caught up in this thing. And it was in Ohio. Well, first we took it to Michigan and we saw phenomenal results in the toughest prison in Michigan. And we saw a 50% decline in violence over a two-year period of time as 1,500 men went through this program I developed, which bring rival prison gangs together 40 days at a time and teaches them how to work together to create better time and really have the things they want. It is pretty stinking simple, but it was radical. And so... And we, we got our roots down in, in Michigan, and so then Ohio heard about it, and I took it over there. And we saw similar results there, powerful things, as these men who don't do programs were stepping up saying, man, this is something I want to do. I mean, one prison, 1,200 men, they put out the word, the Power Peace Project was coming. We had 700 men sign up. I can't do 700 men. It was overwhelming. We had guys that had been down 20, 30 years, said, I've done every program the state gives, and I've never seen anything like this because it was a program meant for real men who were trying to make real change, and it was dangerous in a way, and it just spread. As I began to rap, the way the youth came into the picture was in Tijuana, Mexico. In 2016, I went to Tijuana probably 40 times. <laughs> I'd go out, literally, I'd go out to San Diego, stay with a partner of mine out there, we'd go into the wild, wild west, Tijuana, homicide capital of the world, over 2,500 homicides a year in a city of 1.7 million, that's crazy. I mean, it's like it's just cartel war down there. And I got a chance to do a prison in Tijuana, and I thought, man, well, I know it works in America. I know it works with the youth and with the adult prisoners, but in a Mexican prison, and not just any Mexican prison, this is one of the toughest ones in the country, and which is the, probably the toughest prisons in the world. And I got to work in a Mexican prison and do one of my programs, we translated one of my books into Spanish called 40 Days of Peace, and, um, and it changed my life. That got me in position to meet some young men that are doing extraordinary things. I started working with student athletes. 
down in Tijuana and this amazing organization called Letic Sports. And they're taking kids off the streets, away from the cartels, and not just making them into incredible soccer players, but raising up young men and women and saving lives. That gave me what became kind of a flagship for me in my work. And I wrote a book called Protect the Dream. And this one is, is really what was the game changer for me. Because in one way or another, I do that program in all of, whether it's with schools, the courts, the prisons, free world, working with grant gangs, streets. And it's something like this. The bigger the dream, the stronger the pull. And what I was lacking in my life when I was doing my worst was I'd, I didn't have a dream anymore, man. I'd lost it. I'd squandered it. I'd lost my heart. And when a man or a woman doesn't have a dream, Man, something to get up for, something to stay up late, something to sweat, bleed, cry for, something to pray for. Man, life doesn't make sense. And then anything bright and shiny gets your attention. And like me, when I get bored, I get stupid. And so when I didn't have a dream in my life, that's when I got thirsty and started getting stupid and doing stuff that ended up, you know, messing a family up. And so when my dream came back to life, now it was like, man, I had something to chase. I mean, I was chasing something bigger than myself. And then I just figured out, man, if, if, if I've got this big dream that's got this attractive pull to it, now it's, the game is try to deal with the things that might threaten my dream. And this became the foundation of my program that I do in the, with the kids, whether it be in the schools, the courts, the, the prisons, is help them learn how to dream and then teach them how to protect the things that they value. And so, you know, the, I, I feel like we're on the verge of some some major, major shifts in corrections in the state of Georgia. Uh, man, I just can't say enough about Commissioner Tyrone Oliver. Um, we, are, we are friends, brothers, and now partners in this thing. And I hope it's okay I'm saying that. You know, I mean, I feel, I feel like he is a, a chosen man for just this time and that Georgia is getting ready to do some radical things. I mean, progressive things like reward over punishment kind of things correctional system in America, and we're going to be talking about this in the weeks to come, you know, we've got 4% of the world's population and we lock up over 25% of the world's incarcerated. That's crazy. America has made prison big business, better, bigger than any. I mean, you talk about China, Iran, North Korea, shoot, ain't got nothing. I mean, we, we have made prison big business. We're building as many prisons as schools for the first time in our country the population average age is 25. And so inmates are getting younger and younger, building more prisons and young people going in with nonviolent charges coming out violent because they have to and everything that we see coming from it. So we're instituting a reward over punishment, agreements over rules. And then once they start to earn some of the things back they've lost, we teach them to protect them and it's flat working. And so, I'm really, really excited. I hope, I hope that you'll come back and see us. And as we have thought leaders and real change agents, I mean, I want to have commissioners, elected officials, educators, celebrities and athletes that care about these issues. I want to be talking about the things that keep us up at night. And instead of just watching the news and seeing, man, crime on the streets is rising. What are we gonna do about this gang situation? What about public safety and the opioid epidemic and the suicide crisis? And that, I mean, it's just overwhelming. And we're gonna talk about real solutions. Like this is what we're doing that is working. And then we can bring in some people that really are national thought leaders 
and maybe we can create some more solutions. And for you, why would you tune in? I mean, you know, gangs might not have nothing to do with your life, you know what I'm saying, or the incarcerated or addiction or whatever it is. We're going to talk about mental health. Mental health is, is encapsulates all of this. I mean, whether it be in the prisons, the schools, or just in corporate America, mental health, anxiety and depression, the addiction that comes from it, these are real issues. we got to talk, talk about experts, but if you tune in to learn some things that are working in the toughest places to bring peace, I'm talking about bringing peace to a maximum security prison, you know, bringing peace. I'm going to have one young man that's a gang leader that now is getting out of the game. And we're going we're gonna to get into his mind and talk about some things that you don't know about, about these young gangsters and why they do what they do and how they get drawn into it. But at the end of the day, if we bring peace into somebody's life and that you might pick up a tool or a resource or a concept and then make it your own to bring more peace, now we've got more change agents, more peacemakers. And he said, and I believe this with all my heart, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And that is what we are meant to be. Join us next time. Thank you for stopping by. The Power of Peace with Kit Cummings. Thanks so much.